This is Historical, a monthly podcast and companion piece to Immortal Perfumes. In this series, we'll do a deep dive into the life and times of history and literature's most intriguing subjects, then discuss the best pieces of pop culture where you can get your historical fiction fix. I'm your host, JT Seams, the potions master at Immortal Perfumes. Join me on a journey through time and the ghosts of words past. This month's entry is a look at the life of the Queen of Paris, who spied for the French resistance, dated Frida Kahlo, and took on civil rights in America. Dear listeners, welcome back to Storical, and guess what today is? This is the one-year anniversary of Storical Podcast. Yay! A year ago, I was having a panic attack, fretting that I would never be able to start a podcast, which has long been a goal of mine. And beyond that, even if I started one, I just assumed that I wouldn't be able to maintain it. Listeners, I have to tell you, I really love proving myself wrong about irrational fears. One year ago, I came to you with an episode about one of my heroes, Mary Shelley, and you embraced it. Even with horrible audio quality and me being very nervous reading straight from the script, that one is still one of the top episodes, which I'm kind of cringing about. I'm much better at the audio now. I think I'll actually be re-recording that one soon. If you're listening in real time, it was the anniversary of Mary Shelley's death just a few days ago. So happy birthday in the great beyond to our queen. All of that is to say, thank you so much to everyone who listens. Thank you so much to everyone who left a review or a star rating. I appreciate you all so much. I am a creature of habit. I have very set routines and certain podcasts that I listen to on certain days, and I get thrown off when they skip a week without warning. So I hope that this is something that you consistently look forward to, and I promise to tell you if I'm going to take a week off. This just happened to me, so I'm a little sensitive about it right now. Okay, emotional deluge over. It's February in the United States. February is when we observe Black History Month. I wanted to make sure I chose someone really incredible whom you maybe don't know quite as much about as Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. I also wanted to choose a lady who had a big impact on the civil rights movement. So welcome to the first episode of season two of Storical Podcast. We're going to be talking about the bronze Venus herself, Miss Josephine Baker. Now, I feel really dumb because Josephine Baker is so synonymous with Paris, I assumed she was actually French. But no, she was American. And part of the reason why she was so vive la France is because America was horrible to her. Absolutely horrible. If you're here, like, wait, isn't Josephine Baker that banana skirt lady? One, yes, but also she was a spy for the French resistance against the Nazis, and she was one of the most outspoken leaders of the civil rights movement, to the point that she was the only woman to speak at the March on Washington, and Coretta Scott King asked her to be the leader of the movement after the death of Dr. King. She also adopted 11 kids of different nationalities, which she called her rainbow tribe. Like, Angelina Jolie has nothing on Miss Josephine. Let all of that sink in. I think at this stage, she's kind of been reduced to her sexuality, which I won't downplay. She was divine, but she was such an incredible woman who came from nothing, a literal box in the slums of St. Louis, to be a world-famous star, a spy who saved her country, and a leader who demanded equality. Okay, get pumped. Imagine yourself. In 1925, champagne glass in hand, 
as the curtain opens in a Parisian salon and the great Josephine Baker slinks onto the stage. Chapter One, Street Corner Dancer. Josephine Baker wasn't always known as Josephine Baker. She was born Frida Josephine McDonald on July 3rd, 1906 in St. Louis, Missouri. I'm going to say this now. There is a lot of mystery surrounding her family and the details of her life overall. This is because Josephine's penchant for theatrics meant that she often told stories with conflicting information, and she herself wrote five autobiographies in which she changed her stories around. So that's just a little disclaimer as we get into things. With all that said, here's what we do know of her family. Her grandparents, Richard and Elvira McDonald, were both former slaves. Elvira grew up on a tobacco plantation in Arkansas and told Josephine that she was of Native American descent. Again, not known for sure, but that's what she believed. Elvira was unable to have children, so she adopted a baby she named Carrie in 1886 in Little Rock before moving to St. Louis. Since Elvira worked as a laundress to make ends meet, Carrie was mostly cared for by Carolyn Crook, Elvira's BFF and housemate, as both Carolyn and her husband, as well as Richard and Elvira, all shared an apartment. Carrie loved her Auntie Carolyn, but Carolyn was super strict and believed education was the path to get out of poverty and catch up with all the white girls. Elvira, for her part, was a doting mother, but she spoiled Carrie, and since she was working a lot, didn't keep too close an eye on her daughter. With such freedom, Carrie went dancing all the time. Her daughter, Margaret, even commented, Mama was the most popular girl in the dance halls on Sundays. No one could dance like she could, with a glass of water balanced on her head, not spilling a drop. So we can guess where this is headed. When she was 19 years old, Carrie fell pregnant, though the father's identity to this day is not known. It's a secret that she took to the grave. Auntie Carolyn was livid and threw Carrie out. Elvira, the loving, went along with Carolyn's decree. They were all still living together, and Carolyn was kind of the leader of their little group. Now, the man officially acknowledged as Josephine's father was a man named Eddie Carson, who was a vaudeville drummer. However, there was a lot of talk during Josephine's childhood that her father was actually white. This was something Josephine herself believed. In a biography written about her by her not-legally-adopted son, Jean-Claude Baker, it was posited that her father was probably a white man due to the following evidence. Carrie had been admitted to a white hospital where she stayed for six weeks. Josephine's birth name was Frida, spelled F-R-E-D-A, which is a super German name and spelling. Carrie also worked for a German family prior to her pregnancy. This is all important because as you'll see, Josephine went through life craving that father figure and a sense of security that she never had. Once baby Josephine came, Carrie had to work. So Josephine's care was entrusted back to Auntie Carolyn, who was not at all happy about the arrangement, but nevertheless agreed to it. Her family was again disappointed when Carrie fell pregnant again shortly after Josephine's birth to another mystery man. She gave birth to a baby boy who had much darker skin than she. Josephine perceived that her brother was more loved and embraced by the family than she was because her skin was very light and his was very dark. This would be another recurring source of pain for her throughout her life. About a year after her brother was born, Carrie settled down and married a man named Arthur Martin. She was pregnant again and soon had another daughter, and the family settled into an apartment a few houses down from Elvira and Carolyn. Their husbands are pretty much irrelevant to the story. 
Daddy Arthur, as Josephine and her siblings called him, was generally nice to them, but never did much to bring money home and wasted even more on drink. Carrie was also a stormy personality, and she was forever irritated with and disappointed by Josephine. The two clashed frequently, and Josephine felt as though she was treated differently than her siblings. She was made to do chores while the others weren't, and she had a bit of a Cinderella complex going on. When Josephine was just five years old, Carrie started having her go into the homes of white families to work as a domestic servant. She spent her free time dancing and playing in the streets with the other children, and she was also adept at stealing coal from open train cars. Coal was apparently a huge deal back in the day because it could literally heat your home for the entire winter. When she was eight years old, she had to work in the home of an abusive white woman named Mrs. Kaiser. Two really traumatizing events came out of this. First, Mrs. Kaiser left Josephine to care for a chicken named Tiny Tim. Josephine grew very attached to Tiny Tim. She was an animal lover her entire life, we'll see. And then when he was nice and plump and healthy, Mrs. Kaiser forced Josephine to kill him. Yeah. Then one day, Mrs. Kaiser got upset with Josephine for leaving water boiling on the stove. Josephine's punishment? Mrs. Kaiser pushed Josephine's hands into the pot of boiling water, scalding her. Remember, this is an eight-year-old child. Carrie removed Josephine from Mrs. Kaiser's home and immediately found her work with another family, the Masons. Now, it was just Mr. and Mrs. Mason. They had no children. And Mrs. Mason was quite kind to Josephine. She bought her nice clothes, insisted she go to school. She let her eat dinner with them and let her have time to play with other kids. But after a time, Mr. Mason started kissing Josephine and warning her not to tell anyone. Then he came into her room in the middle of the night, to which Josephine thought he was a ghost. She told her mistress the next morning, and Mrs. Mason didn't get mad. She just got really quiet and told Josephine to shout if the ghost returned to the room. The next night, ghost Mr. Mason got into bed with Josephine, so she screamed, it's the ghost, and Mrs. Mason came running into the room. The couple fought and Josephine was returned to her family the next day. When she was 13, yes, all of that happened before she was a teenager, another creep came into her life. Some accounts have this as purely fatherly and platonic. Other accounts have it as Josephine being practical and cozying up to an older man for protection, but a man in his 50s, who literally had her call him Mr. Dad, gave her a job at an ice cream parlor and had her living with him. I just... Even if nothing sexual happened, I'm so angry for her that she didn't have any adults looking out for her. Instead, people started gossiping. It wasn't the fact that some skeezy 50-year-old had her 13-year-old daughter come and live and work for him. It was that the neighbors were talking about it that prompted Carrie to come get her daughter and take her home. Oh, dear listeners, we're not even close to being done on this part. Also at age 13, after she left Mr. Dad which I just feel like I'm going to vomit in my mouth every time I say that. A man who is between 25 to 30 years old named Willie Wells married Josephine. Married is in air quotes, though, because she was underage, 13, and it was illegal. Her mother signed for it, but under the age of 15, it didn't count. This one, it's unclear how she met Willie or if she actually wanted to marry him or if she was forced into it. In the historical fiction account I read for this, which I'll talk more about at the end, The story was that Elvira and Carrie forced her to marry him after the scandal with Mr. Dad. We'll never know, but I thought that was an interesting theory. 
The marriage didn't last long, though. Willie didn't make a lot of money, and Josephine couldn't hold on to money and would spend on clothes for herself. Then to make it up to him and keep him from getting mad at her, she told him she was pregnant and was knitting for the baby. He discovered that she wasn't pregnant and got violent with her, accusing her of lying to him about the baby. Josephine smashed a glass bottle against his head, and he left and never came back. Josephine moved back home and started working at a restaurant and would frequently play hooky from school, instead running to the Booker Theater to catch the latest silent movies. It was there that her silver screen dreams were cemented, and she knew that she was destined to be famous. And that, dear listeners, is where we set our scene. A spunky young girl growing up in poverty in the shadow of Jim Crow, and a dream to get out of the slums and onto the stage. Chapter 2 La Danse Sauvage. One thing that kind of gets lost in translation now is that not only was Josephine sexy, she was really funny. Part of the appeal of her shows and her dancing was she did these very over-the-top mugging looks to the audience, crossing her eyes, winking, doing the thumbs up. And this too was what originally got her noticed. She lived on the street for a time. We're talking cardboard boxes and garbage cans. And she'd make money dancing on the corners, kind of like a busker today. She also joined a vaudeville troupe called the Jones Family Band. The situation with her mother did not improve at all, and her hounding of the stage manager at the local theater got her a spot with the St. Louis Chorus Vaudeville Show. This was a real vaudeville troupe that traveled around to various nightclubs. Josephine was part of the chorus line and was one of the troupe's comedians. It was a whole setup where, throughout the show, she'd pretend to be ignorant of how to do the dance steps, mugging and being silly to the audience, only to come out and do a super complicated dance routine at the end. She'd send her money home, but her mother still basically hated her, and it did nothing to improve their relationship. When she was 15 years old, she performed in Philadelphia and caught the eye of a 23-year-old man named Billy Baker. He was immediately smitten with Josephine, and Billy Baker was pretty easy on the eyes. They had a quick courtship and eloped, giving her age as 19 because she was still underage, and this time her mom wasn't around to give permission. I know it was a different time, but oh my god, grown men going after children, just gross. There was actually just an article recently in the New York Times about the adultification of black girls, and I'll link to that too because it's obviously still a thing that happens. All right, so now she's got a hot husband, her father-in-law is pretty nice to her, Mother-in-law, not so much, but things are stable. No one knew about her previous marriage to Willie Wells, and she's still dancing in her vaudeville troupe. Then, as fate would have it, that same year, she got a chance to perform in New York City. This was the height of the Harlem Renaissance, so dancing on the stages of Harlem to her was sure to be her big break. She danced in two shows, Shuffle Along and The Chocolate Dandies. New York was fine and everything, but the rampant racism such as not being able to use the bathroom in establishments and having to pee in the alley, not using the drinking fountains, not being served at all, denied entry to hotels, all of that and her constant clashes with her mother made Josephine desperate to escape the United States. And while dancing in New York, she was discovered by Carolyn Dudley Reagan. Reagan was a diplomat's wife and had no job and was just super bored in France, even though she counted Picasso, Gertrude Stein, and Legere as her BFFs. Must have been rough. Reagan wanted to start up an all-black troupe to perform in Paris. 
In Paris, there was definitely racism, as we'll see, but it wasn't overt the way it was in the U.S., and a Black person could move freely about without worry of safety or whether or not they would be served or could use public facilities. And here's the part where I have to give a little disclaimer. As we all know from the Marie Antoinette episode, just because I'm a Francophile doesn't mean that I am in any way good at the French accent. I look up and listen to the words before I do the podcast, but I just need to profoundly apologize because the only accent I'm capable of is Los Angeles circa 1992. I can't turn it off. I'm very sorry. All right. So it's 1925 and Josephine is 19 years old. Reagan offered her a spot in the show and passage to France. She took roughly a microsecond to think about it and boarded the steamship with the other black performers that Reagan had recruited. Billy Baker had given her a name, and that was about all he was good for. She went to Paris and never looked back. Once in Paris, she and the other performers were absolutely delighted by the novelty of the fact that they could go to a cafe, sit anywhere they liked, and be served without anyone blinking an eye, which is just so, so sad. The show itself was called La Revue Negre, which, yep, translates to The Black Review. The show ran for three months and was sold out the entire time. Josephine did La Danse Sauvage, in which she was pretty much nude except for her famous banana skirt. She was an instant star. The only real criticism she got was that she wasn't black enough because the Parisians wanted to see performers who were of darker skin color. So basically she couldn't win. In the U.S., her light skin was deemed too dark to be a full person, and in France, she was too light to be exotic. It didn't matter, though. It was 1925 Paris, and all the lost generation were out in full force. Hemingway was super hot for Josephine and had this thirsty little quote about her. She's the most sensational woman anyone ever saw. And then you had F. Scott and Zelda Fitzgerald and Jean Cocteau hanging around. Josephine was the first Black woman to dance nude on the stages of Paris. She definitely had no problem using her sex appeal to land any opportunities that came her way, but she also wanted to be respected and didn't want to be seen as a courtesan or a stripper. Her singing voice was all right, nothing like too special to write home about, but she desperately wanted to be a chanteuse. A new man then came into her life, and he helped transform her into an international star. Chapter 3. Love and Money Almost immediately upon her overnight success on the Paris stage, an Italian man passing as a count came into Josephine's life. Giuseppe Albertino, who went by Pepito, was cultured, handsome, and well-educated. He spoke Italian, French, German, and English, and impressed Josephine with his exotic manners. He offered to be her manager, and she enthusiastically accepted. She was run down from having to claw payments and respect from show managers and relished the idea of a man to take care of her, especially someone of the nobility. Pepito hired a countess to teach Josephine manners. At the time, he said that she was a savage because she didn't know proper etiquette. And this is the kind of racism I was talking about earlier. She was accepted and loved, but people still used words like savage and primitive to describe her. It was really condescending. Pepito and the Countess worked to help Josephine cultivate both grace and style. He also heavily invested in singing lessons and coaching to help her realize her dreams of singing on stage and not just dancing in the nude. She did score a hit with her song, J'ai du Samoir. Josephine was the toast of Paris. 
After the run of La Revue Negre was over, she moved to the Foliere Bergère, where her phallic-inspired banana costume helped her reach new heights. She would dance in the evenings at various clubs across Paris, then go dance until dawn at her own spot called Chez Josephine. Her fame was so great that a Josephine Baker doll was all the rage for little girls at Christmas. She also had endorsement deals for hair and beauty products. These ventures actually banked her more money than she was earning dancing. Pepito was instrumental in orchestrating these deals and also tempered her diva behavior. But there was a dark side to his love. He was controlling and physically abusive. Josephine had no qualms about taking lovers. To her, sex was sex. It was a currency in that she knew the power her sexuality had over people and wasn't shy about using it. Pepito couldn't hack it and was extremely jealous. In fact, he dueled with a Hungarian military officer over Josephine in 1928, which she loved. Friends and acquaintances were not quite so taken with Pepito, however. Before he had met Josephine, Pepito was like an evil version of Johnny, aka Patrick Swayze, in Dirty Dancing. I'm sorry, but these are the references I know. Pepito would dance with the rich ladies at parties, and they'd slip money and jewels into his pocket, and he'd sleep with them. He was also not actually a count. That was completely made up. But in Paris, in the Roaring Twenties, an exotic look and accent was all you needed to reinvent yourself. Josephine, of course, loved telling the press that she was married to a count, which ended up blowing up in her face. When it was discovered that she was still married to Billy Baker, the press had some questions for her, so the story changed multiple times, and she and Pepito said they were just joking and that she meant she was a countess in a new movie she had just signed on for. This in conjunction with a memoir written for her by Marcel Sauvage, whom only spoke French and hadn't really consulted her on the book, and quoted her saying unsavory things about war veterans, all of this took her down a notch in the press. She ended up getting a divorce from Baker, though she kept his name, and was in a long-term partnership with Pepito. Throughout the 1930s, she kept up her dalliances with such alleged lovers as Frida Kahlo, Colette, the famous French writer, and Clara Smith. All the while, Pepito would fly into a jealous rage and beat her. She toured other European countries to great acclaim, although she experienced more racism in Germany, which is no surprise as the Nazis were just coming into their power. Pepito wasn't sated by this success and tried to convince her to go back to the United States. He felt that it wasn't enough to conquer Paris and Europe. She had to take over America too. She was extremely hesitant because of her horrible memories growing up in such a racist place, but when he dangled a starring turn in the Ziegfeld Follies, she couldn't resist. Except when she got there, she wasn't the star, and hotels refused to house her and told her she should go to Harlem. This pissed her off beyond measure, and the relationship finally imploded. She made her way back to Paris, broke as he took all her money. She was still as famous as ever, but with the war encroaching, things were about to get a lot more serious. Chapter 4. The French Resistance When the war came to France, Josephine at first did the obvious. She traveled around entertaining the troops. Paris was a ghost town, but her shows were still full. And in 1939, she became deeply entrenched in the conflict. An officer in the French military's intelligence service by the name of Jacques Abti had a pretty difficult task. He was charged with recruiting people to work as spies for the French resistance, but could offer no payment. He set his sights on Josephine. Josephine would later say, France made me what I am. They gave me their hearts. 
surely I can give them my life. And this is how Josephine Baker became a spy. She was recruited to be kind of a Matahari type. She would attend parties, particularly ones at embassies, and charm all the foreign dignitaries and ambassadors to gather secrets. She would write in invisible ink on her sheet music and also hid notes in her underwear. As a celebrity, she could get out of strip searches and could travel freely about. Now, Jacques Abti was tall, dark, and handsome, so the two became lovers pretty quick. They worked together off and on through the entirety of the war effort. When Paris was occupied, Josephine retreated to her villa in the south of France. There, she housed war refugees, as well as people affiliated with Free French, which was the group led by Charles de Gaulle. And I knew de Gaulle was the president of France, but I had no idea that he was the guy for the French resistance. So that was interesting to learn. That too became too dangerous, and Josephine escaped to Morocco, taking her emeralds with her by sewing them into her underwear and traveling with 28 pieces of luggage. Gotta go in style, even during times of war. While in Casablanca, which is one of my favorite movies, so to hear that she was basically one of the people in the crowd in Rick's Club is so cool. Anyway, while there, she regrouped and used it as a launching point to tour Spain and gather more intelligence. During this time, she suffered a miscarriage that led to sepsis. Her uterus was removed, which was a huge blow to Josephine as she had longed for a child her entire life. Once she recovered, she went back to performing for troops, French, British, and American that were all stationed around North Africa. After the war, she received La Croix de Guerre and the Rosette de la Résistance and was made a Chevalier of the Legion of Honor by none other than General Charles de Gaulle. Pretty inspiring. Upon returning to Paris in her newly minted French Air Force uniform, she was just as revered as before, but because she was American and the Americans had freed Paris, people were even more taken with her. Chapter 5, The Rainbow Tribe To say that Josephine Baker had a complicated love life is an understatement. She was bisexual at a time when that was not only career-ending, but could also leave you a social pariah. She also had two marriages of questionable legality and two more that ended in divorce. Through it all, she had countless lovers. Despite all of this, Josephine, to her great sorrow, suffered multiple miscarriages and was never able to carry a child to term. There's speculation that she might have had a back alley abortion when she was 13 with her first husband, and that could have damaged her reproductive organs. But again, not confirmed, just a theory. So after the war ended, Josephine, who is now in her 40s, had started to lose some of her shine. I'm loath to say that she lost her sex appeal because that was just part of who she was, but you know how it goes. When you're a woman of a certain age, the parts start to dry up. She married her fourth husband, and the two purchased a 30-room Renaissance castle that sat on a 1,000 acres of land in Perigord. It was called Chateau du Milan, and it was quite the project to restore. Josephine wanted to turn it into a resort where her celebrity friends could stay, and it would be a sort of utopia where race wasn't an issue. She also wanted to finally have the opportunity to settle down somewhat and start her family. She decided that since she couldn't have her own children, she would adopt orphan children. But not only that, she wanted children of all different races. During the 1950s, basically any time she went out on tour, she would come home with a new child. She had 100 servants and a revolving door of nannies to care for her children. At first, she only would take male children because she was afraid of sticky romantic notions forming between them, but she did eventually take in some girls. 
All said, she had 10 boys and two girls with a 13th child, Jean-Claude Baker, that she didn't formally adopt and is the one who wrote the book that has the most accurate information about her life. Josephine called her children her rainbow tribe, and it sounds like she treated them like the Von Trapp children. The kids came from all corners of the globe. Japan, Venezuela, France, Finland, Algeria, Colombia, and she would dress them in matching outfits and have them perform. Josephine really wanted to prove that it was possible for people of all races and nationalities to be brothers, but she was also not there a lot because she was always off performing. Some of them are still alive, and it sounds like they had a complicated relationship with Josephine, particularly a son, Jerry, who was reprimanded by Josephine in front of his brothers and sisters when he came out as gay people are complicated. I haven't touched on this much yet, but in addition to children, Josephine also collected animals throughout her life. In the early days of her show, she'd perform with a cheetah named Chiquita, who would jump into the orchestra pit and cause chaos for the musicians. She also had monkeys, dogs, cats, birds, a verifiable menagerie. So with all these kids and animals and this gargantuan house to fix up, she soon ran out of money. The house was repossessed, and they literally carried her out of it because she refused to leave. But who should come to the rescue but her good friend, Grace Kelly, a.k.a. the now Princess of Monaco. Grace Kelly helped her get a villa in Monaco, and Josephine and her children relocated there. This wasn't the end for Josephine. Some of her most important work was still to come. Chapter 6, Civil Rights Activist In 1950s America, you could be one of the most famous international dancers who had appeared in three films and received the Legion of Honor for your work as a spy during the resistance and still be denied service at a diner or hotel, which is exactly what happened when Josephine set her sights on coming back to conquer America. No matter what she had achieved, back home in America, all she was was her skin color. And this made her furious. Despite the indignity she was forced to endure, she had considerably more power than she had as a girl in St. Louis. She booked tours across America and refused to play for segregated audiences. Her refusal meant that many clubs went for integration, not wanting to lose such a big-name draw as Josephine. This was particularly notable in Las Vegas. One club in Miami had offered her $10,000 to perform, but again, she refused unless it was integrated and they actually met her demands. When she arrived in New York City to perform, 36 hotels denied her a room. She got loud and wrote articles about her mistreatment. She became a luminary of the NAACP and went on crusades for the organization. This, of course, was controversial, both with white America and with black America. For some black Americans, there was a fear that she was actually doing more harm than good due to her background as a nude dancer. Others felt that she didn't understand the plight of Black America because she was more French than American at this point. They were afraid that she didn't really quite understand their specific struggle. She received threatening calls from the Ku Klux Klan and had a very public falling out with a former ally, the white journalist, Walter Winchell, for not standing up for her when she criticized the Stork Club for not accepting Black patrons. But in 1963, Josephine was asked to speak at the March on Washington as a leader of the movement. This, of course, is the famous rally where Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. gave his I Have a Dream speech. No women speakers were on the official program of the event, which is pretty ludicrous given people like Rosa Parks were in attendance, but Josephine was allowed to speak for two minutes. She was the only woman who ended up getting to speak at all, even though it was unofficial. She said in her speech, 
You know, friends, that I do not lie to you when I tell you, I have walked into the palaces of kings and queens and into the houses of presidents and much more, but I could not walk into a hotel in America and get a cup of coffee. And that made me mad. There's a really amazing photo of her in her French military uniform at the March on Washington, speaking with Lena Horne, whom I did an episode about in spring of last year. I'll link to that in the show notes. Josephine was about a decade older than Lena Horne and paved the way for her career. Lena was the first black Hollywood glamour girl and got roles that Josephine couldn't. Super interesting connection. After Dr. King was killed, his wife, Coretta Scott King, approached Josephine and asked her to be the new leader of the civil rights movement. Josephine seriously thought about it, but ultimately said no. Her reason? My children are too young to lose their mother. Pretty sad, scary stuff, especially considering this is work that is still ongoing so many years later. Josephine continued performing, and in 1975, at the age of 68, she gave one last grand performance. The show was financed by Jackie O, as well as Princess Grace and her husband, Prince Rainier. Some of the people in attendance, just to kind of orient you to how recent this was, included Liza Minnelli, Mick Jagger, Diana Ross, and Sophia Loren. So nuts. Even at 68, Josephine Baker was a force, and the respective that spanned her entire career received rave reviews. The Bronze Venus, the Black Pearl, as she was known in her heyday, died four days later of a brain hemorrhage. She was found lying peacefully with newspaper cuttings of her reviews spread all around her, probably the greatest exit anyone has ever made. Chapter 7, La Douce Amour. I gather that before today, you knew about Josephine Baker the dancer, and I hope that now you have a new appreciation for just how amazing and original this woman truly was. She has inspired everyone, from Ernest Hemingway to Beyonce, who performed Josephine's Banana Dance in 2006. Let's get down to recommendations so you can carry on and really get to know this incredible woman who exuded Black excellence. First off, the most important piece that I relied upon for research for this episode was the biography written by her unofficial adopted son, Jean-Claude Baker. The book is called Josephine, The Hungry Heart, and what's so great about this book is that he was an insider to her life, knew all her stories, and he actually went and tracked people down to get quotes directly from them. And the language and prose used for the book is jazzy and joyous, so it reads much more pleasantly than most biographies. If you'd prefer a historical fiction telling of her life, then you need to go with Josephine Baker's Last Dance by Sherry Jones. This book I listened to on audio before I read The Hungry Heart. So as I was listening to the book, I kept being like, no way, that's too far-fetched. But this book is basically a dramatic retelling of The Hungry Heart. So yeah, all the things are true. If you decide to read this, I highly recommend the audio because the narrator, Adenrele Ojo, has this silky smooth voice that absolutely nails the Josephine Baker character. It's really great and makes you feel like you're right there with her. I'd say my only criticism was the book spent longer on her childhood than it needed to, but it was absolutely captivating and helped to really put her later life into context. There's a 1990 HBO movie called The Josephine Baker Story, starring Lynn Whitfield, who won an Emmy for her performance. I didn't have the chance to watch it, but I was able to find the whole movie on YouTube, so there's a link if you'd like to watch. Apart from that movie, though, there hasn't been a big Hollywood movie on Josephine. She mostly just shows up as a character in other films. So Netflix, let's get that greenlit. 
In terms of podcasts, there's a few out there that detail her life, but the best one I found that was a joy to listen to was on the Dead Ladies Show podcast. I am definitely going to subscribe to this one because I found it funny and informative, but I think it was a recording of a talk someone was giving on Josephine Baker because the guy kept referencing slides he was using. This was a great overview of her life, and what I also like about it is the speaker is clearly a historian and has extensively researched Josephine's life. It kind of felt like a Josephine Baker TED Talk. I think I've said this before. I'm not a historian, but I love history enough that I do this research and try to present it to you in an interesting format, so I hope it works for you. I'm also going to link a few videos to Josephine dancing so you can see the raw physicality of her craft. There's also an interview she did with Johnny Carson in 1973 so you can hear her voice. It was so sweet and pretty. I will leave you by saying that Black Girls are magic and Josephine Baker was truly enchanting. Thank you so much for listening. Like I said, it's the one-year anniversary of Historical Podcast. We're officially in season two, and I'm so excited for the year ahead. Over the next three weeks, I'll be doing Historical Footnotes episodes digging deeper into Josephine's life. Next month, things will be a little different. We're going to be doing a new person every week because March is Irish History Month, and apparently I have a lot of Irish listeners who requested more Irish subjects. As a person of Irish heritage myself, I will oblige. And you'll definitely want to check them out because I managed to pick probably the most controversial people that you can pick. So tune in. Should be interesting. Next week, though, we'll look at the friendship of Josephine Baker and Grace Kelly.